It's Friday, September 23rd, 2016 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. America has been accused of a lot of things. Colonialism, racism, opportunism, largest exporter of monster truck culture to the world. But I've come across a new accusation today. A Saudi professor, quoted in the Wall Street Journal, referred to the American Shiite Axis. There's an American Shiite Axis? Well, yeah, I mean, America funds a lot of different groups, and in some places, like they do fund, America does fund Iraq's Shia popular mobilization units, the Pumas, I call them the Pumas, and they fight the Islamic State. It's not unproblematic, these Pumas. But anyway, the broader complaint I find hilarious, this American Shiite axis. And more than hilarious, it's ridiculous. And more than hilarious and ridiculous, It's hilarious, ridiculous, and quite tragic. There are, throughout the world, religious differences. Muslims and Christians are in conflict. Muslims and Hindus in India. Muslims and Jews in Israel. Every religion is clashing with some other religion. I don't mean to pick on the religion of Islam. Take Sri Lanka, where Hindus and Buddhists have been killing each other for quite a while, though there's peace now. But my point is that these are clashes between religions. And everyone in the world knows about these. Now, you probably also know that within the religion of Islam, much like many religions, there are also internal clashes. Most Americans, actually, I don't know if I stand by this statement. You as just listeners know that Shia, Shia Muslims, and Sunni Muslims, they clash. But let's dig deeper inside the Sunni branch. So recently, Chechen strongman and cat misplacer Ramzan Kadyrov had a conference. And the point of this conference was to define Islam. This is going to go well. Now you should know that cat misplacer and strongman Ramzan Kadyrov is a Sufi Muslim. He believes in the Sufi strain of Islam. Guess what strain of Islam was decided to be the real strain of Islam in this conference? That's right, it's Sufism. Go suck it, Wahhabis. No, no to you, Salafis. So, if you're scoring at home, Islam clashes with Christianity. Sunni Islam clashes with Shiite Islam. Within Sunni Islam, there is a clash between the Wahhabis, the Salafis, and the Sufis. It's not only Islam. Hello, great schism, great awakening. It's just that no matter how much that you think your group is the real group, and no matter how much you define yourself as apart from these other groups, no matter how pure, within your pure group, someone is going to claim, no, we're the purer strain of that group. We're the true believers. You're the apostates. Me, Jim, and Ted Oh, Jim has a message. Him and Ted, they're the true believers. I'm the apostate. Oh, now Ted's saying he's the only true believer. Death to the Jim American access. Is it geopolitics? Is it religion? Or really, is it just a version of the star-bellied sneeches? Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think such a thing wouldn't matter at all. If you thought it meant nothing, I'd say congratulations. But in real life, it leads to wars, leveling whole civilizations. Oh, the places you'll go in today's show, places familiar and obscura. We'll talk to the editors of Atlas Obscura about mountains and molehills of fascination throughout the globe. And in the spiel, I'll tell you where we'll go. We're going to the Trump anxiety hotline. Yes, 
Our pre-debate anxiety hotline is enjoined, but first to the four corners of the globe, then up a little, no, a little to the left, no, a little to the right, now down that hole right there, yes, now you're inside Atlas Obscura. Atlas Obscura is a website, it's an idea, and let's face it, at this point, it's a lifestyle brand. They're out with a new book called Atlas Obscura, An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. Now, a wonder of the world could be the Hanging Gardens of Babylonia or the Colossus at Rhodes, something you can't miss. This is all the stuff that you might miss. And Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton, who are editors of the Atlas Obscura website, are here to plug their book to reference their website, and to talk about the things that you didn't know you wanted to see, but you do. Dylan, Ella, hello, hello. 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 Okay. I think the best way to uh, start by defining the Atlas Obscura difference is to pick a totemic place. I'm going to choose one, and then you each come up with one. And I'm going to go to Turkmenistan. There's this fire that will not be extinguished by God or man. Tell me what is going on in Turkmenistan. Why is it constantly on fire? So the the door to hell or the gates to hell uh-huh. uh, is in the Turkmenistan desert, and it is a 200-foot-wide crater uh, that has been on fire for 45 years. It So even longer than the Springfield Tire Fire. Correct. Yes. Uh, in 1971, a Soviet drilling rig basically accidentally punctured a huge crater and fell in. The entire rig fell into the hole, and it started leaking natural gas. And so in kind of good Soviet uh, geologist style – they figured, let's just light it on fire. Uh, it'll burn off in a, a month or two. It was actually kind of reasonable. I mean, they needed to do something. But 45 years later, it is still on fire. What's it look like? I, you, I mean, you can see it in Google Maps. It's like a little red glowing dot. But it's just this massive burning hole. And at night, if you go at night, it sort of uh, shoots this beam of light into the sky because there's uh-huh. nothing else for, for miles and miles like around. Like an always remember type uh, memorial light? You yeah, mean? exactly. Yeah, Al- always remember yeah. the, the, the <laughs> Turkmenistan Soviet drilling rig disaster. And there's a deal with spiders too, in case yeah. this didn't attract you. So, so this this is the, the word on the street. I, I feel like this needs to be substantiated uh, by entomologists. Uh, but the idea, the rumor is that basically the light and heat attracts local spiders, which fling themselves into the crater, uh-huh. making it even the Gates of Hell title sort of even more appropriate. So basically, if Salvador Dali designed a tourist attraction, this would be something like, I mean, I know totally. he liked ants rather than spiders. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a softer one for us, Ella? I do. I have <laughs> okay, an adorable one. Yes. I have one that is both a place and a phenomenon. It's it's uniquely charming to me. At Ueno Zoo in Tokyo, uh-huh. every February, they go through this exercise where some of the zoologists dress up in these papier-mâché costumes of rhinos and what I would call zebras, what yes. I think you call zebras. Yes. Um, and they run around dressed as these animals practicing the escape procedure. And other zookeepers run around with a big net and chase them. And they do this for the amusement of all and sundry. There are school children around watching this. It's it's so charming. We've I love featured it. that on The Gist. I've done play-by-play. And we have to say, they do not, they have done no study into the way zebras or rhinos actually act. They act more like cartoon creatures with bonks on the head. Yes. They get confused. Oh, yeah. That has probably little zoological use, but it is pretty funny. 
It's adorable. So that's an example. Oh, there are so many subcategories. If we were to do a taxonomy of that, which is uh, Atlas Obscura worthy. So that is a site, uh, a tourist attraction that dials up the quirk one or two days a year for a special event. That's in the book, right? But one of my favorite kinds of sites that Atlas Obscura covers is the passion of the individual who will not be denied. Like, what is the Baltimore Death Museum? The, oh, oh, the the, the uh, nutshell studies. Oh God, yeah, those are amazing, and they're still in use. I mean, they still take the forensic police through there to to look at them. So tell me, tell me what that is. Okay, so they were basically. I mean, you you might remember more about her story, the woman who who created them. But yes, yeah, so back in the day before forensic science was an established field, there was this woman who created essentially these little dollhouse dioramas, but they were dioramas of murder. Yeah. So they were little scenes where she would create, she would hand sew like sheets on beds and clothing for these tiny dolls, but there would be scenes of murder and suicide. And they were very grisly. Famous were, actual murders? They were definitely, they were taken from police cases. Wow. So students at Harvard would be studying these little dioramas that this sweet, nice middle-aged lady made. And they're still in use. They're at the Baltimore Medical Examiner's Office. I think there are about 18 of them in total. Fantastic. Okay, so the, the passion of the individual, the natural wonder, the quirky day or two associated with uh, something real. Uh, what are some other major categories of things? Obviously, there's sort of abandoned stuff, yes. you know, the kind of like left derelict, whether it's, you know, some incredible grand structure or an insane asylum. I and mean, we have a lot of that stuff on the site. And so in the book, we try to sort of pick through it more specifically yeah. to choose something that's Also, got- since the site moves and you can have drones, touring an insane asylum is good on a website. A picture of a giant antenna in Homedale, New Jersey, that's maybe good in a book. I love the Homedale Horn. That's an amazing place. <laughs> Tell me about and, the Homedale Horn. Not, a, not abandoned exactly, although sort of just sitting there. But that's where the background cosmic radiation of the Big Bang was discovered. And they were trying to get rid of this sound, this hum that they were hearing. And they thought maybe it was a problem with their equipment. They thought maybe it was pigeon poop. They like were doing everything was driving them crazy. And then one of them was like, oh no, we're hearing the universe. That's the sound of the universe, you know, having been created. So that's a a wonderful, that's another subcategory is kind of scientific stuff. I actually love when the subcategories cross when you get like crazy science history and abandoned. There's a, there's a place that's, that's not in the book. Maybe it'll be in some future edition called the, Harp Space Gun, mm-hmm. which is abandoned on a Barbados beach, built during the 60s in a joint U.S.-Canadian project to make a space gun. It still holds the record for shooting stuff the farthest in space. It shot stuff like 14 miles into the atmosphere. It was insane. But the guy who built it, basically the funding was pulled. People got nervous about the building of like a giant gun that could shoot like across, you know, yeah. it made people uncomfortable. Not on message with what Barbados was selling as a tourist destination. Totally, yeah. So, so basically- <laughs> they just, for the sea, stay for the space <laughs> I w- gun. I would though. I would stay for the space gun. It does gun. answer the question, if aliens invade, what's the best place to retreat to? Barbados. Barbados. Re- yeah. Reinstate the sta- uh, space gun. Anyway, so this guy, Gerald Bull, who made this, Went on to basically start, he got really frustrated, spent a little time in prison because he was designing basically giant guns for various evil uh, regimes, apartheid South Africa, communist China, uh, Saddam Hussein. That's who funds space guns. I mean, you got to go where the money is. That is quite literally his whole deal was like, who is going to fund my space gun? And then he was uh, 
mysteriously assassinated in 1990 at the end of all of this because and basically no one knows who did it because at that point he had so many different governments yeah. who were willing and excited to to so it's just a, it's just this crazy story and and to me the fact that the the gun is lying there on the beaches and his actual cause of death was it a, was he shot he was shot oh, he was shot he was thank yeah. god yeah, yeah, at yeah. least he shot, was shot out of a space gun yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is there a trying too hard aspect where you can't make it into atlas obscura Ooh. A trying too hard. Yeah. Well, like trying to be excessively quirky in a Brooklyn yes, way. Yes, that I've seen. I live in Brooklyn, so just mm. I know you too. Also, well, at least work in Brooklyn, but you see this sometimes. Or like a whole store devoted to artisanal mayonnaise. Or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, yeah. I think we like the thing. We like to unearth things, like yes. a museum that's been sitting there gathering dust for decades, and then you stumble upon it, and the people there are like, "Oh, let me tell you about my personal passion." That's the kind of stuff we love to find. Yeah, we give a pretty uh, harsh eye to, like, restaurants and stores and hotels, you know, because once in a while, not too often, but once in a while someone tries to slip something in and they're like, the walls are covered in old records. And you're like, Mm -hmm. nah, it's not going to cut it. It's not good enough. I think you've (laughs) uncovered a Bennigan, sir. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. What's the breakdown between things that you guys find and curate and things that you'd never know about but for fans of the site and fans of your brand telling you about them? The whole project is basically enormously dependent on the community of of people, of of both far-flung explorers and just like someone who grew up next to some giant castle that a guy was building in his backyard. I mean, that's one of the best things about Atlas is when you have a conversation with some someone. Invariably, at some point into the conversation, they go, you know, there was this place I went to when I was in high school. Yeah, like, back, back out near the like, old Miller place. Exactly, yeah, like yeah. precisely. And you go, <laughs> go on. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we, we definitely add our, we come across stuff on our own and we add it to the Atlas. But, you know, the vast majority, 90% of the stuff that's in the book has, has come, you know, through people saying this really belongs. So I did an interview with a guy named Tom Zellner who wrote a book called Kindle Single, Come See the Mountain, and it's about a mountain in South America, Potosi, and it's about dark tourism, um, people going and watching kind of the terrible working conditions. And there are other names for it, misery tourism or poverty tourism. Atlas Obscura doesn't exactly trade in that, I don't think. But you can argue that perhaps some of these things were in their day miserable, and now we're deriving pleasure out of them. Yeah, and that was something that we definitely discussed while we were putting the book together because there are places in here that we would not recommend that you visit because it might be disrespectful or it might be slightly weird. It might tend toward poverty tourism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a cemetery in the Philippines where people live. Yeah. And we would not recommend that you walk around there and point stuff out and take photos. But we thought it was important to include some of those things just to show what's out there. Yeah. I mean, when you get into this question of dark tourism, everywhere, you, any historical site is in some sense a dark tourist site. Like it's, it's, a, it's a grayer distinction than I think people are uh, aware of. But, you know, it's like go to a Revolutionary War or a Civil War site or, you know, most places in the U.S. And in some way you're, you're dealing with dark tourism. Right. It depends on once you're there, what the attitude is and how respectful you are and how yeah. much you understand and the context. Yeah. Not not chasing Pokemon at Auschwitz would be. <laughs> we, yeah, that's not recommended. Though if the game makers it. put them there, I think it's more on them. Yeah. You know, you got a six-year-old. What are you going to tell them not to look at Pokemon? I know. I know. Um, do, you have a, do you have a unified theory of lake monsters? Mm. Yeah. 
Well, they're almost all Nessies. I mean, that's the first thing, like right out of the gate. They're all smaller Nessie copies, essentially. Yeah. Uh, Blockness and Monster was a big thing. Everyone yeah. was like, someone saw a piece of driftwood in our lake. Let's name the monster. Totally. Right. And, right. and uh, so, so there's like a kind of a lack of creativity going on in mm-hmm. the lake monster world. Although you get a couple of good ones. I like the ones that are like non-aquatic things. You know, like a lake panther or a lake goat man, and you're sort of I don't, you're getting into some some weird and interesting territory there, where your lake monster is something that shouldn't be in a lake in the first place. I like yeah. a good goat man. Yeah. There was there's one particular origin story that I remember. I think it was from a lake monster in Oklahoma, where the theory was that a family of chimps from a circus train that had crashed had run away and mated with the local alligator population. Uh-huh. And Makes that that had caused some sort of hybrid, some sort of yeah. pseudo-aquatic hybrid <laughs> in a lake in Oklahoma. <laughs> Atlas Obscura is the name of the book and the website, and as I say, the way of life and seeing the world. Thank you, Dylan Thuris and Ella Morton, editors of this book and that site. Thanks so much. Thank, Thank you. And now the spiel, and not just the spiel, back by popular demand. In fact, almost medically mandated, it's the Trump Anxiety Hotline. Hi, Trump Anxiety Hotline. I'm really, really, really worried about Hillary's chances. 538 has Trump having more than a 40% chance to become president of the United States. That's 10% lower than 50%. That's a coin toss. All right, those are 538's odds. Let me throw some other odds at you. There are other sites doing the odds. The Daily Coast has Hillary with a 64% chance of winning. The Princeton people have Clinton. Their random drift number is 69%. Their Bayesian number is 80%. Love the Bayesian. The upshot, that's the New York Times one. They say Hillary has a 73% chance of winning. You could bet on it getting odds of about Clinton with a 65% chance of winning. So those are the polls. Maybe some of those other polls made you feel a little bit better than the 538 polls. But let's throw a couple other data points out there. If Hillary were to lose, she would have lost the largest post-both convention lead ever at the latest point. So we would be saying Donald Trump, yes, Donald Trump, think about the campaigner, That is Donald Trump. That's the guy who will have pulled off the biggest comeback in electoral history. All right. Nate Silver says this is the best critique of his numbers. It does not take into account get out the vote. We'll be talking about this on The Gist. I hope you listen to my podcast. I don't just man the hotline. I have a podcast. And Hillary's doing classic trying real hard, nose to the grindstone, get out the vote. And Trump has decided, I don't know, he's going to reinvent get out the vote. We'll just inspire people. And even if they have no legs or vans or cars, they'll get to the polls. But the other thing about the polls, and I know Nate's numbers and Upshot, they take this into account. People are freaked out because the national polls are within two or three, but the state polls are better or a lot better. There is a 50-whatever percent chance that Hillary wins, according to 538. But if you look at the states that Trump has to win, he's performing much worse than his nationally stated number of 45%. He's doing worse in New Hampshire. He's doing worse in Pennsylvania. I don't mean he's doing worse in the polls. There is a 4, 5, 6% lead in the polls. But if you look at 538's very own odds of him winning those states, it's worse than the national numbers. Nate knows this. 
But what I'm saying is it is hard to cobble together a plausible path to the presidency. You add all this up and a whole bunch of other factors, I I don't believe 538's number. I don't know if I believe the Princeton Bayesian number. I just think that Hillary is still very, very much a strong favorite. Hey, Trump hotline. Uh, my anxiety isn't about 538 or if the odds say 55 or 65 or, or 70, even the lowest odds of a Trump presidency are higher than they used to be. The polls are closer than they used to be. I'm not talking about the numbers. I'm talking about the reality. All right, here's my number one issue with all of the 538 and Upshot and all these other uh, models. I think they're great. I love models, but models are based on the past. And Donald Trump, he'll tell you, has nothing to do with the past. He's breaking from the past. What I mean is that he's not a normal candidate. All the models are based on candidate A versus candidate B. And in history, if candidate B is behind by this much, here is candidate B's chances of winning. How do we calculate the chance of winning? There's a chance the polls are wrong. We could figure that out based on past history of if the polls were wrong. There's a chance that people change their mind. We can base that on things like underlying issues and where the economy is, candidate A versus candidate B. But Trump isn't candidate B. He has nothing to do with candidate B. He's not even candidate F or Z. He's candidate Blurgflurg, which is a letter in an alien language that doesn't exist. I'm not saying, oh, throw out the numbers. You can't get a number on Trump. You can. The polls are accurate for what they are, but for the future, they're all based on what happened in campaigns of the past. The Trump campaign is almost nothing like what's happened in the past through campaigns. There are a couple points to emphasize. Trump in the primaries and caucuses underperformed all of his final numbers, meaning he would show up as whatever, 48% in the polls and then wind up getting only 44% of the vote. This wasn't true at the end when it became a fait accompli that he would win, but he was an underperformer, meaning that he was a fine speaker and would get people activated in their mental and emotional centers. He just couldn't get people to the polls. He was a bad closer. That's going to show up again. And the very important thing is, In the history of campaigning, to my mind, there has never been a potentially disastrous debater like Donald Trump. All of the stats, all of the candidate A versus candidate B stats, whoever the worst candidate B was, they were a better debater than Donald Trump. That candidate knew more than Donald Trump knew. And if I told you, if I told 538, if I told the Hillary Rodham Clinton team that you're going to have a two-point lead going into the debates. If you were in the Hillary team, you'd want more of a lead. Why wouldn't you? But I think everyone would take their chances. Not that they're overconfident, but if they have a grasp of reality, they would say, wow, I would think Hillary would be a much better debater than Donald Trump. And you'd be right. Hi, Trump hotline. About the debates, what if she loses? Americans don't score who made the best points. They sometimes are just attracted to the glib or the one zinger. That doesn't favor her, does it? Okay, we forget. Donald Trump did not win any of his debates. He's done a dozen debates, and he did poorly in all of them. He dominated talking time, which was a stand-in for winning, especially in a 17-person field, especially trying to appeal to Republicans who want to see a projection of strength and dominance. All right. So that is not a debate. That is some sort of weird clusterfuck that Donald Trump was good at. But this is a one on one debate. 
And Hillary really won all her debates. There was that one in Brooklyn where there was a lot of yelling going on. But she showed competence. She showed astuteness. And if she lost a debate, she lost to a guy like Bernie Sanders. And there are more liberals than not in Democratic primaries. So she never did poorly in a debate. I think she won almost all the debates. Trump did poorly in most of his debates. Sometimes he had a good line. Sometimes he had a good zinger. Sometimes he made fun of Marco Rubio for sweating. None of those things will hold in the national one-on-one debates. I want to talk about one moment. In one of the New Hampshire debates, they were talking about something. They asked him about Northern Pass, and Northern Pass would bring hydroelectric power from Canada into the northeastern grid. And it was so clear, if you watched, he had no idea what Northern Pass was. Do you see eminent domain as an appropriate tool to get that project done? Well, well, let me just tell you about eminent domain, because almost all of these people... Eminent domain, it's not that I love it, but eminent domain is absolutely... It's a necessity for a country, and certainly it's a necessity for our country. So would that be yes on the Northern Pass project? Gosh, the difference, the difference. Yes, yes, the difference... And the reason I bring this up is to say he wasn't called on it. He quickly changed the subject. One of the 16 other guys jumped in. The moderator didn't feel emboldened to press him. That dynamic cannot go on during a one-on-one debate. If he is exposed, if there is a subject area that he doesn't know about, and there's a lot he doesn't know about, we're going to know that he doesn't know it. Such is the structure of a one-on-one debate against someone with subject area expertise. If I asked a fair-minded person who was on the fence, give me some adjectives to describe Clinton, they might say untrustworthy, they might say stale, they might say legacy, but they would say things like knowledgeable, serious, competent, and all of these adjectives correlate to winning a debate. I really do think she holds an unbelievable edge in the debate. And you know what? If you can't win a debate with Donald Trump, maybe you don't deserve to be president. Unfortunately, the rest of us have to live with that consequence. So I'm saying she's going to win a debate with Donald Trump. Uh, hey, Trump anxiety hotline. Uh, yeah, other than the statistical and logistical arguments not to panic, can you maybe offer me like a mystical one? Sure, man, you are a human being on this earth and you are one with all of us. Now, here's what I would say. All these people who are panicking, who are going around saying, I don't think Hillary can win or I'm really, really nervous, you're undermining your candidate. You have to have a little strength and you have to have a little backbone. There is a phenomenon in politics where you don't want to be overconfident, yet at the same time, if you project strength, if you show momentum, you will, just by smiling and being a good salesman, convince others to rally around your cause. So this is my last message to all those people I read about in certain New York broadsheets who are frantically dialing their therapists. Buck up. Your country deserves your confidence. Watch this debate. Know that she won. Then go around acting like she won. I know your precinct of the Upper West Side is not really in play. But the whole national conversation and the whole angst, if Hillary will or won't win, it is playing into Donald Trump's hands. His tiny, tiny hands. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson has never visited the Canadian Potato Museum of Prince Edward Island. But just producer Chris Berube... He hasn't been to the Prince Edward Island Muscle Museum of Pocatello, Idaho. 
Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is considering organizing a family outing to the unclaimed baggage center of Scottsboro, Alabama. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has a far more interesting destination in mind. The Kawar Salt Mines of Punjab. There, the local workers, after putting in 18-hour days, have been heard to remark, please, whatever you do, do not make me visit the unclaimed baggage center of Scottsboro, Alabama. The gist, we're cute, but we're no sloth sanctuary of Cuejita, Costa Rica, where in the infant section of the slothpital, tiny wet-nosed sloths are placed in little pajamas made of athletic socks and then placed in incubators. This is where the sitcom Webster taped their awe track. Um peru de peru do peru, and thanks for listening. Our Trump is here. Our Trump is here. Our Trump is